You know, our theme for this year is to follow Jesus. As I shared last week, we were praying for 2022. It was a burden on my heart of what is our spiritual state and why we need to really follow Jesus. So we began with the Psalms of Ascents. To, to, in a journey of following Jesus is a journey of long obedience in the same direction. The idea of persevering. And being parents uh, is really the most persevering part of their journey, you know. Uh, we are glad that and really feel blessed that the Lord has uh, really given us many children. Uh, and we are thankful. And so as we come to the end of the year, we are really entering the last series um, from the book of Hebrews, what it means to press on to maturity. The journey of following Jesus ultimately is to become Christ-like. That is our purpose on this earth. And being mature, maturity in Christ is part of what it means, uh, is part of the process of growing to Christ-likeness. So as we look into the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews has distinctly five warning passages that have been traditionally very challenging and disturbing to scholars and readers of the Word. And so we will examine what are these five warning passages the danger of drifting, doubting, dullness, despising, and defying. And then really, our solution is turn to Christ in Hebrews 11 to 13 the, for the works of faith, hope, and love. So today we are in our second talk in this series, The Danger of Doubting. Let us go to the Lord in the word of prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. I pray for Holy Spirit to speak to us. Convict our hearts that we'll see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, John Kafka, he wrote a book called The Trial. It is about a man called Yosef. One morning, Yosef wakes up and he finds himself under arrest. Now, nobody will give him an explanation why. Now, Yosef goes through life with some basic assumptions. That the world is a decent, rational place, or the world is a rational place, and I'm basically a decent person. But through the story, as it unravels, you know, the assumptions prove false. And so he begins to struggle. He begins to be overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. You see, he thought if I would just sit down and write out all the, the reasons why I'm being arrested, surely I'll find a reason. He thought if I wait long enough, you know, the authorities will explain to me because we can trust the authorities. Surely they are reasonable. But he asked the warden, the policeman, even the judge, and no one would give him an explanation. So he's just overwhelmed. He was anxious, desperate. So he really wrote down everything he did in life. And then when he looked at it, he thought, wow, you know, maybe because of this or that, that is the reason. And then he was overwhelmed with guilt because he realized he isn't such a decent person. You know, this story, as you read it, is the sense of anxiety and desperation. You know, what does it remind me of? Sometimes you have nightmares and you always, there's something chasing you. I don't know if you've ever had a nightmare. You, know? you keep running and you want to wake up, cannot wake up. And it keeps coming after you and get more and more desperate, more and more anxious. Have you had that kind of dreams before? I hope I'm not the only one, okay? Now, how do you wake up from those dreams? Suddenly, you scare yourself awake. You know how does this story, The Trial, ends? Well, finally, the warden brings him to this quarry and across the quarry, there's a building. And on one of the, on the rooms, a balcony with a man standing with arms opened. Throughout the whole story, the people that Yosef met, they all met him with folded arms. 
So when he saw this man, he says, finally someone reasonable. Finally someone to explain to me why I'm under arrest. And then suddenly the warden from behind stabbed him and he died. And Kafka ends his book with this statement, and he died like a dog. Now firstly, friends, Kafka's book, uh, better don't read. <laughs> Very cheap. So I only read the cheat sheet, okay? But many scholars like to read it. Are we like that? We go through life with some basic assumptions and when those assumptions are shaken, we feel like our foundations are shaken. We begin to be anxious. We begin to grab onto something. Is this world truly rational and am I truly a, basically a decent person? I don't know if you remember recently when the borders between Malaysia and Singapore opened up. A lot of people rushed to Malaysia, right? I saw this video clip of a lady trying to stop the car. You know, The car was trying to move. She, she tried to stop it. And she got so mad, she ripped out the number plate and threw it on the, on the, on the car. Well, why is she so angry? Now, apparently before that, this car scraped hers accidentally. And you tell me, is this world a rational place? Am I basically a decent person? We look at the Russian-Ukraine war. We say, well, it'll never happen. They're one family and now they've been fighting for months. And then we discover right, some of the cities that that the Russians took over, their mass graves. And I thought, you know, if I'm one of the Russian soldiers, given the order to kill all these innocent people, and my own family is back home under threat, would I do it? Maybe. Is this world a rational world? Am I basically a decent person? During World War II, when FDR, the President of the United States, got news of what the Germans were doing in the Jewish concentration camps. He refused to believe it. It's not that he don't believe, he refused to believe it. He said, at that time, you know, Germany was, was one of the nations with the highest educational levels. He says, how is it possible that people so educated and sophisticated will do such acts of evil? Friends, Scripture tells us that we are sinners living in a broken world. Maybe you too have some assumptions in life. I can depend on my health and strength to achieve what I want. I have a wonderful, loving family. I'm loved by my children and spouse. I'm a top producer at work. I contribute to my company. And guess what? A pandemic comes and the whole world stops. You work at home and you find there are so many problems working from home. No matter how great a performer you are, your headquarters in another part of the world decide to shut your whole division down and you lose your job. Suddenly, our assumptions in life are shaken. If you're anxious and desperate, trying to grab onto something that is real, friends, we need gospel rest. And that is what I would like us to consider today from Hebrews 3 and 4. What does it mean to enter gospel rest? From Hebrews chapter 3 to 4, we'll first look at the danger of doubting. Now really, it's unbelief. But I says the preacher in me felt compelled to come up with a D word, so I said doubting. Actually, it's the danger of unbelief. Alright, then it tells us the solution to it and our response. So last week, we saw the danger of drifting. And we come to Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. 
Now this is a quotation from Psalms 95. He continues, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalms 95, Psalm of David, is about some events that happened even earlier in Scripture. In Exodus 17, Maribah and Massa, where the people were in the wilderness and they, they ran out of water and they blamed God. And God told Moses, strike the rock and there'll be water. God provided. And then Numbers 14, Kadesh Barnea. What happened here? They were about to go into the promised land. You know, they actually only took a few weeks when they left Egypt to reach the promised land. But they sent out 12 spies. They came back, two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, yes, let's respond by faith and go in and attack the place. But the other 10 says, no, the people are so tall, we are like grasshoppers. And so the Israelites decided they are not going in. And God says, because of that, you will stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, why 40 years? Well, because it's one whole generation will die out. And so Psalm 95 is a, is a quotation of, is about these two events of their disbelief in the wilderness. The issue here is about the rest. God says you will not enter rest. Now, in order for us to understand our text today, we need to understand the concept of rest. There are three ideas in Hebrews 3 and 4. Canaan rests, when they enter promised land is rest. Sabbath rest, the seventh day of God rested in creation. And finally, the promised rest, the eternal rest. Okay, so after quoting Psalm 95, it explains what it means. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now this is the main phrase, the main statement of the entire text is about your unbelieving heart and do not fall away. Instead, encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says today is the day of repentance. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't know you have an opportunity tomorrow. In Kadesh Barnea, the people said they don't want to go in. The next day they repented. It says now we want to go in but God says, no, you will remain in the wilderness for 40 years. And so scripture tells us, beware of a hardened, unbelieving heart. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The idea of persevering. says, while it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked Him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Who are those that face God's wrath? It's those who came out of Egypt. They saw God's providence in the ten plagues and how He opened the Red Sea. But it is, it is these people who did not believe God. With whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they will not enter His rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This is a summary statement. The whole idea is the heart of unbelief. Friends, what causes unbelief? Perhaps it's our pride. The first sin after creation is pride. Satan fell as an angel from heaven because he wanted to be like God, to be like God, to think that I know better I know this relationship is wrong. I know this decision is wrong. But 
I believe it gives me happiness, but I believe it gives me success. We think we know better than God. That's pride. The neglect of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are how we draw near to God, that we communicate to God. Now imagine if you only talk to your spouse once a month. What is that like? Now some of us say that's heaven, you know. Hallelujah. But are you able to maintain a relationship? No way. And so spiritual disciplines keep our hearts soft towards the Lord so that we are familiar with His voice, so that when He speaks, we can hear and not be hardened. Corporate worship, corporate worship is not just an act, a motion, we just come here, gather, sing song and hear me talk, you know. Corporate worship tells a story, just as baby dedication tells a story. Corporate worship tells a story that we belong to God. It's a weekly rhythm we build into our lives, reminding ourselves and others that we are not our own. Every week we come here to consecrate ourselves to God. And even if I don't hear anything that I feel useful, I wouldn't say, ah, the preacher is lousy, I don't get anything from him. The song's no good. The idea is yourself, we present ourselves to God. There are times when we don't feel like singing. There are times when we don't feel like praying. But you know, when we gather together, the songs of others, the prayers of others raise us up. And that is why we emphasize the physical gathering and not just worship online. And then, there's the small group, the community. Because we can come to church with a lot of people and yet feel lonely because we are not known. And in community, it is where you are known, where you know and you are known. Where you serve and you are served. Where you love and you are loved. That is when we are reminded of who we are and what God wants. You know, when I was doing my doctorate, it was part of a school set up by the founder of Evangelism Explosion. It was one of those mega churches in the 90s. So it's a big church, but a bit older gen people. Okay? At that time, the senior pastor had passed on. He's gone home to the Lord. So they're looking for a new senior pastor. Right across town, there's this fastest growing church in that town, uh, led by this guy called Tulin Tavision. So they hired him. And because Tavision started that church, the whole two churches combined, two big churches combined, you know, never seen it before. Now, who is Tulian Tavision? He's the grandson of Billy Graham. So, you know, when I look at him, he's tall, handsome, gifted in leading, preaches well. Every time I listen to him preach, my knees go weak, you know. Now, once I was having classes and then they gathered us and said, you know, he's, he's stepping down. Tavision is stepping down. Why? Because he had an affair. And then later, years later, we found that actually there was multiple affairs. So what happened? I look at him, I said, man, if you want looks, he has looks. You want gifts, he has gifts. You want pedigree, he has pedigree. Right? He's a name. Why did he disqualify himself? Why is there unbelief in his heart? His mentor, Steve Brown, said, you know, Tulian experienced success very early on in his life. In his early 20s, he planted that church and it just exploded. He began to feel isolated. No one spoke truth to his life. He worked hard and began to feel entitled. You know, in leadership, it can be the loneliest place on earth. You become isolated and you feel that I deserve more. People don't appreciate what I go through. And there's a sense of entitlement. And so, Steve Brown said, I believe as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, since the confession of sin is made in the presence of another Christian, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. 
in confession, there occurs a breakthrough to the cross. What is the state of your spirituality today? As I mentioned last week, you know, when we reviewed the last two, three years, 2020, and the question was posed to me, what concerns and fears do I have? And since actually 2020, I just felt excited. 21, I felt the need for intimacy, the relationships. And really, it was this year as we prayed about it that I felt concerned. As we open up, we are thinking about how to get people back. But really, my concern is what is our spiritual states? Are we drifting? Do we have a heart of unbelief that we think we know better? So what do we do? Scripture tells us the danger of doubting, the solution then, he says, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short. He says, persevere on. If God speaks to you today, repent. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today. You think I continued in this state, I continued in this sin, it's okay, I can repent later on, but you may not get the opportunity. Olivia Langdon grew up in a Christian family. She loved the Lord, served fervently, and then she fell in love with Samuel Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, the famous author. Mark Twain, we know, is a lifelong uh, humanist. But at first, he was open to the faith. He went to church with her, so she was persuaded to marry him. She has great hopes that he will come to faith. Now, eventually, he told her, he says that after they got married, he says, you know, this is not my thing. Why don't you just go to church yourself? And because she was so disappointed, her heart began to harden and eventually she stopped going altogether. One day, their young child, I think they had a miscarriage or was a young, the baby came out and died and Olivia spiraled into depression. Samuel Clemens could not encourage her. He could not help. He was desperate and he told her, Livy, why don't you go back to church? Go back to your God. Let Him comfort you. And you know what she said? She said, Samuel, I cannot because I have forgotten how. How tragic that someone who once loved the Lord fervently has forgotten the way home. But that is the result of unbelief. If we allow sin to harden our hearts. Scripture tells us to persevere. Don't come short of it. Because we have had the good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. The good news, the gospel, Christ died for us and rose again. Respond in faith. But it says those, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't hear about Jesus. So what is this good news? It's good news of the rest when they enter Canaan. They didn't respond in faith. For if we have believed, enter that rest, just as he has said, as a sword in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now he talks about the rest of going into Canaan really points towards the rest of God in creation. So he says, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. Now remember I say in the book of Hebrews, he always says somewhere, you know, but it's not that he's like us, you know, we memorize scripture and we don't remember where Aga Aga says somewhere there. It's not, okay? This is a Greek idiom that says that where it is, the location is not important. What's important is the content. And he quotes from Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. It's interesting. You look at the Genesis account. Every day closes. There's evening, there's morning, there's evening, there's morning. But there's one day that didn't end. Which day? The seventh day. 
When did God enter the seventh day? After the sixth lah. No, on the sixth day, He finished creation, human beings were made, and God enters rest so that He can enjoy the relationship with His creation. And so it seems like God is still in His seventh day now. But we fell into sin, turned away from Him. So the entire redemptive history from, e- from the time of Eden, God is restoring us back into this rest. Hence the idea of rest. He says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today. He says there is still a rest, and so today if you hear it, respond. Don't wait. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says, if the rest is just about entering Canaan, Joshua already succeeded. But then why did David, years later, in the promised land, in Psalms 95, still talk about another day of rest? So what the author is saying is the true rest is the eternal rest. The eternal rest that we can experience now because of Christ, because of the gospel. And every time we gather, we observe Sabbath. It is a rehearsal of entering this rest with God. We enter the seven-day rest with God. And so what is this rest? In my pastor's voice, I quoted Judith uh, Shalavis. She said, No amount of vacations can cure your restlessness if you don't learn how to get to that. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do is to stop. To stop working is to not work. We think rest is just don't work. It's not true. You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. Religious rituals are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. We don't go through the motions. It's not about traditions. It's about the story we tell. The story told by Sabbath is that of creation. God rested and we rest in order to honour the divine in us, to remind ourselves that there is some, there is more to us than our work and the machinery of self-censorship must shut down, stealing the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. It says true rest is finally being able to accept yourself because you know you're accepted by Christ, by God. Otherwise, we are always grabbing, seeking, insecure. So are we, have we entered experience that kind of rest? The book by John Kafka, The Trial, is read by many scholars as an allegory against uh, religious bodies. Essentially, he says all these authorities and religious bodies, they're all corrupt. That's why he leaves people lost. You know, and, and the guy was desperate trying to find an answer. He couldn't and he died like a dog. Actually, what's wrong with a dog? Actually, dog very happy, right? Yeah, hungry, they eat. They feel like pooping, they poop. So what's the issue here? See, dogs... They only live for the, what they can see, what's in front of them. They do not think about what is eternal. They don't sit there and wonder about the meaningful, meaning, meaning of life, why I feel so empty. But we are not dogs, okay? We are made in the image of God, right? Last week we saw they were made a little lower than angels and because we are made in the image of God, we think and ponder about the ultimate, ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose and hence we deal with emptiness. 
And what it's saying is that what we need is gospel rest. That through Christ, we know our Creator and we can accept. We know we're accepted. And this eternal murmur, inner murmur, there's always this inner voice criticizing ourselves, murmuring, it will eventually shut down. And friends, we can do that. We can come towards God because of Jesus. And so the next passage, it says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You see, on the one hand, we say, once saved, you're always saved. I believe that. Once you're truly born again, you're always a child of God. Even if you fall into sin, you're still a child of God. Now, the relationship may be disrupted. You may not enjoy the peace and joy, but it doesn't change your status. So we call this eternal security. But on the other hand, there are many scriptures like this to say you must be diligent to persevere. See, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, by my perseverance. There are many people I know who at one point in life are fervent about Jesus, but now you ask them, they say, I'm not a Christian. What do we make of that? But I don't know, I can only accept what they tell me, right? That perhaps that he's not a Christian and perhaps he was never truly born again. Perhaps it's like the parable of the sower that Jesus said, you know, throw the seed and they grow and after a while the sun comes up and he dies. So we need to hold this tension, a comfort to know that we are always a child of God, but at the same time, we need to be diligent about not falling. We need to be aware of the state of our souls, the hardness of our hearts. Therefore, be diligent to enter the rest. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. He's saying be diligent. How? By repenting when you hear the Word of God. God's Word pierces our hearts, our souls, exposes us. Repent. Turn around. Throughout history, many people have tried to destroy the Word of God, but none has succeeded. Manasseh, an evil king of Judah, burnt all, of, all the law of God. Twenty years later, his grandson Josiah found the law in the temple. Maybe someone hid it away, but because of the law, the whole nation revived. 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian issued an edict to burn all the Bibles and to persecute Christians. 20 years later, Emperor Constantine made Christianity a state religion and issued an edict to mass copy the Bible so that he can give it to all his kingdom. In the 17th century, well-known French atheist philosopher Voltaire declared, in a hundred years, the only place you can find the Bible is in a museum. Well, a hundred years later, actually 10 years after his death, his home became a Bible publishing house to send Bibles all over Europe. A hundred years later, there was an auction where his works were sold for 11 cents. At the same auction, there was a manuscript of a Bible sold for 500,000. The Word of God remains forever. Not because it's just a written Word, but because it's the living Word. The Word of God here refers to the Bible, but also to Jesus. Because immediately after this, he talks about Jesus being the great high priest. And Apostle John also tells us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word is Jesus. So right after the Word, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who is this? Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. How can we be diligent in persevering, holding fast our confessions? Because 
of Jesus Christ. When the Word of God pierces our hearts, we stand naked and exposed, turn around, and you're able to do it not based on your merits, but because of a high priest. What did Jesus do? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So as we look at Hebrews 3 and 4, the idea is to enter gospel rest. Gospel rest is our inner rest where we know we are accepted by God and hence we can accept ourselves. Even within the assumptions of our lives are shattered by reality. We are not desperate. We are not anxious. We are not afraid because we know we've been accepted. Gospel rest is possible because when Christ died upon the cross, He died for all our sins, all our weaknesses, all our struggles. We need to turn back to Him. Rachel Gibson shared about her story of how she walked out of her atheistic background and a same-sex relationship. She said from high school, she knew she liked girls, and so she started having intimate relations with them. But when she was in Yale, she was dumped by her girlfriend. The girlfriend actually liked a, a man living at the back of his van, basically a homeless guy. And she was devastated because at a point she said, my identity, my self-worth were all wrapped together in that relationship. She was devastated. And so one day she was in the home of a friend looking at a bookshelf and she saw a book, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. She said, I wanted to read this but I didn't bother to go and buy. So she looked around, no one was looking. She said, I took it. She said, my moral code at that time was as long as they don't hurt two people too badly, I would do it. So she sat in the library every day just reading the book and one day she said, God help me shone light into my heart, I realized that there is a creator who is holy and righteous and I'm a sinner. I'm cruel, arrogant, immoral. I lie and I'm a thief. I'm reading from a book that I stole. I now understand why I need Jesus to come between me and the wrath of God as a barrier. And true security is not running away from Jesus but running to Jesus. So she became a Christian and she says, very soon I found that my same-sex attraction was not going to change. She says, for 18 years I prayed, God, if I were to flourish and have abundant life in you, how can I do that if I continue to remain same-sex attracted? And she says, eventually God told her, if you can only obey and accept what you can understand, then perhaps the God that you're worshipping is yourself and not me. Friends, are there things in your life you feel you're holding on to? You feel you know better. You feel this will lead to my success, my happiness. I know better than God. We need to let go. We need to submit to the will of God, not because we can accept it, not because we can understand it, not because we agree. We respond by faith to what pleases God. And your faith is acceptable because we have a great high priest who understands us, who sympathizes with us that we can draw near to Him for help. And so today, once again, I ask you, 
What is the state of your soul? After three years of going through the pandemic, how, is, how are you doing spiritually? Is there unbelief in your heart, hardness in your heart? That you no longer hear the Word of God, no longer hear God speaking to you, or when you feel God speaking to you, you, you refuse to turn around. Tell you, this week, I was wrestling with some issues. Again, it's the home buying thing, you know. It's like, I want to have enough sleep every morning, wake up too early. So I'm thinking, maybe I should move again, you know. And, you know, the government just changed certain policies, okay, some cooling measures. So I was thinking, during my quiet time, I was thinking about this. See, this is what I think about during my quiet time. <laughs> and then suddenly, out of the blue, God asked me, will you continue, if you make this financial commitment, will you continue to be generous? And it's a shock to me. Because, because, because from my financing background, right, we think about, when you do investments or house, you think about loan, how much to pay, you know, what to do. Will you ever think, can I be generous if I buy this house? You know how I feel? Naked and vulnerable. When the Word of God pierces your heart and exposes everything, you know, it's like, come on, God is saying, who are you kidding? What are you really wrestling about? But I repented. I turned around because I know God is speaking. So friends, what is your spiritual state today? Let us pray. Maybe for some of us, we are wrestling with certain issues in our hearts. Let us respond to God in prayer. Don't remain in unbelief such that your heart is hardened. Surrender. Draw near to God, to His throne of grace, because we have a great high priest who is one who can sympathize with us.